I can't really remember when I last had any hope. And I certainly can't remember when anyone else did either. Because really, since women stopped being able to have babies, what's left to hope for? The world was stunned today by the death of Diego Ricardo, the youngest person on the planet. The youngest person on Earth was 18 years, 4 months, 20 days, 16 hours and 8 minutes old. The ultimate mystery, why are women infertile? Some say it's genetic experiments, pollution. Why do you think we can't make babies anymore? Doesn't matter. It's all over in 50 years. It's too late. Move along! Alright. We're back! We're back, everybody, with Season 2. Lost Futures, the Mark Fisher podcast. This is Season 2, wherein we are covering capitalist realism. <laughs> yes. Starting with Chapter 1. It's easier to imagine the end of the world than the end of capitalism. So, we are opening chapter one with a discussion of the movie Children of Men. Alfonso Cuaron's 2006 film, which describes a type of dystopia that Mark Fisher finds to be extremely intriguing for a number of reasons. Right. And these are kind of a little bit famous as far as like Mark Fisher... This is usually what people read when they first read Mark Fisher. Yeah, yeah. This, um, you know, as we mentioned in our uh, preview blurb, this is probably one of his most well-read books, most well-known books. It's a rather short book. But within that short book, it kind of lays out a political diagnosis of capitalist society and particularly of the ways in which neoliberalism has taken things from you. Uh, neoliberalism will explain in a little bit, but first, Children of Men. What happens in Children of Men? Right, so Children of Men, for those of you who haven't seen Children of Men, is a dystopian film from 2006 about slightly in the future, which I think was two years ago, where women, for whatever reason, are all infertile, and society is breaking down uh, as a result of this seemingly unsolvable crisis that will invariably lead to the extinction of the human species. And England, at least within the perhaps not entirely reliable framing we're given, England soldiers on as the uh, sole stable government, and it has become a xenophobic, somewhat authoritarian uh, state. Yeah, it's set in 2027, so it's in oh, the okay. near distant future. Uh, one thing to note about this first chapter is it takes heavily from Mark Fisher's K-Punk article called Coffee Bars and Internment Camps, where a large part of his analysis rests on this fact that because of this dystopian universe they started rounding up immigrants because everyone was fleeing to England and that in the opening scene Clive Owen's character goes into a coffee bar and the coffee bar is struck by a terrorist attack and he finds it very interesting that coffee bars can coexist right next to internment camps. Right I think also it should be pointed out that there are literal like cages with humans on them, like, basically scattered throughout the scenery when you're walking through London in this movie. Uh, seemingly, there's an internment camp at every train station that they stop at. There's a ubiquitous degree of this is a totalitarian society, but in many ways, and this is one of the first things uh, Fisher hones on to, is that in many ways, despite this being a totalitarian society, it's not an entirely unfamiliar one. Unlike, say, he names V for Vendetta, and within that you can also say 1984, both book and film. You can also say my favorite uh, movie like this, which is Equilibrium. Uh, what is the difference he, he notices that makes Children of Men the movie that is his criticism. So, first of all, there's actually nothing directly said about the government. You can imagine that elections still occur in this society. There's 
not really an indication that we've actually formally suspended democracy. It just nonetheless is a horribly authoritarian government uh, that uses a police state to, among other things, round up immigrants, round up supporters of immigrants, round up any dissent against the government. You aren't ever shown the leader. You aren't told whether the, there is still a prime minister or still a parliament. There very well may be. He points out that in the book version, you get more of the, the right. government. In, in the book version, the main character, I think, is actually like the nephew of the dictator. Well, in this one, too. Uh, or the, like... He, no, in that one, it's mentioned he had a family connection that could get him a pass. But it, I think in the book version, it's like way more detailed than that. But... um. Whereas, of course, um, you know, 1984 has a big brother, although famously it's unclear if that person's real. Equilibrium has a leader and a decidedly non-democratic system of government without elections, as does 84, as does V for Vendetta. Brave New World. Uh, Brave New World as well. You know, so right away we can actually literally imagine this as our society, if our society just made a democratic decision to make a concerted effort to round up all immigrants and uh, strike out against dissent with a overwhelming police presence. As he says here, for all that we know, the authoritarian measures that are everywhere in place could have been implemented within a political structure that remains notionally democratic. The war on terror has prepared us for such a development. The normalization of crisis produces a situation in which the repealing of measures brought in to deal with an emergency becomes unimaginable. And yeah, that, that's basically what you just yeah. said. And now he gets into the quote that was the name of the chapter and how this reminds him of a phrase that's attributed to either Frederick Jameson or Slavo Zizek that it is easier to imagine the end of the world than it is to imagine the end of capitalism. Do not ask us who said this. Do not ask us what the original phrase even was. It's impossible to find out. <laughs> we, yeah. you we, might do, do a, we might do a full episode on yeah, this. Yeah, we, we could do a, a Good 20 minutes just on the efforts that it takes when you actually try and Google like where this quote first appeared and from whom. But yes, uh, for our purposes, it's either Frederick Jameson and or Slavo Zizek. And the quote is, it is easier to imagine the end of the world than the end of capitalism. Than it is to imagine the end of capitalism. Yes. That slogan captures precisely what I mean by capitalist realism. Right. So there we go, everybody. We found out what capitalist real is. End we're of season. On, we're only on page two. It's a good thesis, though. Right, it's, yes. This uh, is how to write a thesis statement, everybody, is to meanderly discuss a movie that you saw. <laughs> <laughs> um, for a paragraph. Yeah, he, he then keeps going on about children of men and uh, other interesting things he notices about the movie is that there are internment camps next to franchise coffee bars, that they coexist, and that, interestingly, public space has been abandoned, given over to the uncollected garbage and stalking animals. And he notices one key scene when Clive Owens and the woman who's pregnant and her wet nurse go into a school and they get startled and they think that it's the police and they think that it's like something that's going to kill them and it's a deer running through the elementary school and the elementary school's been abandoned because there hasn't been a, a kid that's been born in the last 18 years. Yeah, and this is, I think, another key element of Fisher's thought generally, capitalist realism specifically, and why this movie specifically, is the very poignant, and if you listen to our last season, this should make sense, the very poignantness to this movie being about a canceled future. Uh, to the fact that, you know, as it said in the intro when we played the trailer, uh, in 50 years this will all be over. 
and how that generally uh, plays into what Fisher's ideas about late capitalism, neoliberalism are, and I think, you know, we can, uh, I'll vaguely, I'll offer a little bit of a preliminary definition of neoliberalism as a movement of concerted deregulation and removal of money from public spaces over a historic time period from the late 70s through now yeah. uh, that occurred in much of the industrialized West. It especially uh, was prevalent in the Anglosphere in the United States and England or UK. But for now, I think that's a perfectly good working definition uh, without getting into what would be so, what would theory. be some examples of people that exhibit uh, neoliberalism for an American or British audience. I, I don't know. I mean, uh, we contracted Sesame Street out to HBO to. Yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, we in the '60s we. Or 70s, we created this thing called Sesame Street that was literally paid for by the government, shot in studios owned by the government by directors who were paid by the government to do a public service of providing a free educational television show for children free of charge and free of commercials. And under the Obama administration, you know, this might be a bit of a frivolous example, but we the government entered into a contract with HBO wherein HBO gets to air Sesame Street. It gets to air new episodes before they air on PBS. And so we've semi-privatized even Sesame Street. Uh, but I mean, you know, I think there's uh, plenty to be said about the removal of money from social housing in both the US and England, UK, uh, from healthcare and the like. I think for American audience, I always put neoliberalism starting to get the ball rolling with Carter administration, and then really Reagan, yeah, Reagan and Thatcher took it up. Generally, the archetypical story is the various economic crises during the 70s under the Carter administration led to the introduction of more austerity projects that then more or less coalesced into a ideology and political project of progressive uh, defunding, deregulation, and privatizing, privatization, and uh, the notional idea of the shrinking of the state, which throughout this book, uh, Fisher will very explicitly challenge that notion uh, that this sort of contraction comes with the shrinking of the state. Now, Fisher discusses neoliberalism throughout a lot of his work. Much of what he discusses in, you know, the last season was this idea of the cancellation of the future. Uh, and even in this, within capitalist realism, that's still a present theme, is the inability to imagine the new. Uh, which is sort of another way of approaching cancellation of the future. So, you know, I think it is poignant to point out that in Children of Men, we are dealing with almost a point where neoliberalism wants a cancelled future, neoliberalism thrives off a cancelled future. In Children of Men, that's exactly what neoliberalism is getting. Unfortunately, it will cause the imminent extinction of all of mankind, which will upset the market, but for the time being, uh, this is almost a utopian society of neoliberalism. Here's the quote that he uses that this definition will kind of give meaning to in this context. Neoliberals, the capitalist realists par excellence, have celebrated the destruction of public space. But, contrary to their official hopes, there is no withering away of the state in Children of Men. Only a stripping back of the state to its core military and police function. And I think that is his critique of neoliberalism is that if you sell this privatization, you don't get rid of this giant apparatus of bureaucracy that you 
fear incurring into your private life every day, what you get is a hyper-militarized, hyper-police state. Or, or even just more bureaucracy, as we'll get into throughout this book. It doesn't even need to come in the form of a police state. Although, you know, in Children of Men, they need literal internal passports to drive around the country and stuff. But it's not even necessarily, I don't think, a police state. I think it's this contradiction of actually this increases the onerous feel of bureaucracy while we are pretending that it's decreasing and also i mean does he even mention 2008 in this well chapter? in the next yes sentence and I say official hopes since neoliberalism surreptitiously relied on the state even when it has ideologically exoriated it. This was made spectacularly clear during the banking crisis of 2008 when, at the invitation of neoliberal ideologues, the state rushed in to shore up the banking system. Right. We're set to kick off lower, a whole lot lower. eBay is down 6.5%, and really you're seeing just broad-based declines across all of the major technology sectors. Apple's under pressure, uh, Yahoo down 8.5%, Cisco 6.5%, Research in Motion 10%. Like this could be the most serious recession in decades. And that means life, as most Americans know it, is about to change, in some cases dramatically. So we're basically approaching, you know, from the start, this idea that neoliberalism, one, does not truly shrink the state, and two, in fact, relies on the state, not e only in its most, you know, crudely Marxist sense of it needs police to create property, but also it, um, you know, literally the banking system doesn't work if the state doesn't inject money into it every now and again. Literally, it's great that you know you don't have to pay for public schools if there's no children but also all of mankind will uh be dead in 50 years so mm -hmm. you know so i see this he's responding to one the war on terror two the banking crisis in 2008 and three ecological disaster and i think catastrophe is a very present thing that runs throughout this book and here he looks at children of men as a catastrophe that is lived through, or the end of the world has been lived through, and it doesn't happen in a bang. It it you you just see it in slow motion almost. Mm -hmm. And in the next section, he looks at the catastrophe. And what is the catastrophe? Well, you know, it's not quite clear. There's Nobody knows why people are infertile. Nobody knows why there isn't a next generation to replace the old. What you get is people that are scared, so they turn to superstition and religion. And you get people feeling helpless, depressed. You see Clive Owens always seemingly in an alcoholic state, mourning his dead loved ones, seeing his friends die around him as a result of these kind of in infighting between groups that exist trying to bring about a future to believe in and he says here that there is like that the theme of sterility must be read metaphorically as a displacement of another kind of anxiety and what he is saying here as you said before is this anxiety is in, in cultural terms. How long can a culture persist without the new? What happens if the young are no longer capable of producing surprises? And that, I think, he, he links to a lot of things. He links it to a general uh, state of modernity, of people who have looked at the state of capitalism and said, you know, we can't exist with there being a future because a future would mean the end of capitalism. So we must retrace the old. We must look into the past in right. order There's to this... create and synthesize something that we call new, but really is just pointing backwards. Right. There's this uh, basic stagnation in the face of decay and all you can do is ignore the decay because 
if you acknowledge the decay, then you need to also acknowledge that you're incapable of doing anything about it. And that, I think, is also an important point in just understanding what capitalist realism is, what the challenge is, really specifically to figure out what to do about it. And uh, how then, to break free of it. Right. How, well, how to, what to do about the, I mean, our society is doomed, but we need to keep going to work because what else are you going to do? And here he kind of points to a number of modernist examples, particularly T.S. Eliot and the wasteland. And T.S. Eliot, he points out, is kind of behind children of men in a lot of ways that it it references it. Yeah, he's explicit. They explicitly reference T.S. Eliot. Shanti, 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 which is originally from a, Upanishads. Upanishads. But T.S. Eliot is the last line of the wasteland, and the wasteland itself is this kind of patchwork of fragments that kind of all have death and gloom, and how can we imagine the world after the First World War? Um, how or as can they called it the only world war. <laughs> the Great War. Yeah. And that in order for there to be great art, T.S. Eliot, uh, kind of a conservative poet and thinker, made it so that there had to be like a West, a canon that art took from, you know, and he formulated with Harold Bloom this tradition that all poets must fall into in order to create great art. Fisher links this to the idea of the present and the past and the inability to see a future without looking back at the past. He says, Eliot's claim was that the exhaustion of the future does not even leave us with the past. Tradition counts for nothing when it is no longer contested and modified. A culture that is merely preserved is no culture at all. So yeah, you, you have no more past, you have no more future, all you have is to live for the here and now. And to me, that kind of summarizes a lot of Mark Fisher's critique when we talk about capitalism as the only game in town. So the other aspect of capitalism that also gets uh, mentioned, and we kind of blew over it because you know we don't want to just read this shit to you but uh he, he actually opened up with this commentary on this uh particular scene in children of men uh the battersea scene in which uh clive owen is walking through a building that has various pieces of art uh including uh goya's uh guernica uh, by picasso or Picasso's. Picasso's Guernica. And uh, Michelangelo's David. Also a giant pig balloon for some reason. Um, I thought that was cute. Yeah, I yeah. think it's cute that they referenced uh, Pink Floyd. You kill me. A hundred years from now, there won't be one sad fuck to look at any of this. What keeps you going? You know what it is, the I just don't think about it. Yeah, anyway, um, but you know, just this, there's this inherent absurdity in this context because of this lost future of this no children of, you know, these are the great legacies of mankind. They're holed up in this rich guy's place uh, where no one can see them and pretty soon he and everyone else will be dead and then no one ever will see them. And it's, sort of speaks to this general capitalist tendency to, you know, turn the sacred into the profane. And uh, at this point, he uh, quotes from the Communist Manifesto, capital has drowned the most heavenly ecstasies of religious fervor, chivalrous enthusiasm, of Philistine sentimentalism in the icy water of egotistical calculation. It has resolved the personal worth into exchange value, uh, and in the place of numberless indefeasible chartered freedoms has set up that single unconscionable freedom free trade. So, you know, basically what Marx is saying in this, and what Fisher wants to get across, is this idea of capitalism's real 
need to reduce, you know, the transcendent, the sublime, and resolve it into the quantifiable. Your value as a human is not who you are, it's how much you have. Your freedoms are only resolvable in your participation in the market. Uh, your, and we see this, you know, your self-expression is found in what you wear, what you buy, the things you collect, and how they signal to others what group you're in. And in the same way in Children of Men, we have this transcendent piece of artwork that is now just the collector item that serves zero purpose. It doesn't serve the purpose that the art did. It barely serves the purpose that it would serve in a museum. It kind of turns the museum on its head a little bit. Like Yeah, it, it basically is creating... It's preserving it, but preserving it for who? A culture that is merely preserved is no culture at all, as he says. And these things that they've collected from the world that they want to preserve really don't have any value except as things to have, not things to that have any inherent value. Right. So they're stripped, as he says of Casas Guernica, once a howl of anguish and outrage against fascist atrocities, now a wall hanging of, yeah. is exemplary. And even the even the Battersea, and this reminds me of the stain of place, has this, it's a hanging space in the film. Mm -hmm. it, it once had an iconic status, now it is a just another space that has no history that is that has no past that has no right. future is just the best place for the rich and wealthy to hole up yeah and it's i mean almost turned into this jamesonian pastiche anyways but like uh, of literally we're recreating the cover of animals by <laughs> Floyd. so we we've basically established what Mark Fisher believes capitalism is at this phase and what it's doing. You know, it, it's dehumanizing, it's desacralizing, it is authoritarian while claiming to be freedom, mm -hmm. and so forth. So now we're gonna move a little further along and we're gonna be discussing. So how does capitalism justify it? Right. So for that, he kind of turns to... Uh, Elaine Badu. Yeah, Al Badu. <laughs> um, you can call me Al Badu. Yes. Al Badu is a French communist theorist who was prominent in the 1970s and 80s, all the way up through the 90s and 2000s. And he wrote a book in 1993 on evil. And in this section, Mark Fisher, yeah, he quotes on evil an interview with Elaine Badu from July, August of 2001. In this interview, they went back and they asked an extra question after 9-11 happened. Right, yes, yes. On evil kind of looked at his 1993 book about evil in order to ask the question what does he think evil is and he had this answer that mark fisher uses to explain what it is that capitalism does in order to defend itself and here he has a quote we live in a contradiction a brutal state of affairs, profoundly inegalitarian, where all existence is evaluated in terms of money alone, is presented to us as ideal. To justify their conservatism, the partisans of the established order cannot really call it ideal or wonderful. So instead, they have decided to say that all the rest is horrible. Sure. They say, we may not live in the conditions of perfect goodness, but we're lucky that we don't live in a condition of evil. Our democracy is not perfect, but it's better than the bloody dictatorships. Capitalism is unjust, but it's not criminal like Stalinism. We let millions of Africans die of AIDS, but we don't make racist nationalist declarations like Milosevic. 
We kill Iraqis with our airplanes, but we don't cut their throats with machetes like they do in w Rwanda, etc. And I think you had something about that, that this is capitalism creating an other. In, in Badu's book on evil, it, it seems what he is doing, or at least what he's trying to do in this interview is describe evil as this functional political other entity uh, that capitalism defines essentially as something external to itself to justify its own existence. So evil is what is outside of capital. You must embrace capital because evil is worse. Capital is not evil because evil is outside of capital. Right. Yeah. Um, it, it does remind me of the lead up to the Iraq war and like we need to go in and intervene and the end result might be the deaths of millions, but it's good because at least we're getting rid of a dictatorship right. that will end up being worse for the people there than the killing of millions of people. Yeah, or the massive deaths that follow the end of the Soviet Union, for that matter, I mean. I accept fully that those opposed to, th to this course of action share my detestation of Saddam. Who could not? Iraq is a potentially wealthy country that in 1979, the year before Saddam came to power, was richer than Portugal or Malaysia. Today it is impoverished, 60% of its population dependent on food aid, thousands of children dying needlessly every year from lack of food and medicine, four million people out of a population of just over 20 million living in exile. The brutality of the repression, the death and torture camps, the barbaric prisons for political opponents, the routine beatings for anyone or their families suspected of disloyalty. We must face the consequences of the actions we advocate. For those of us who support the course I'm advocating, that means all the dangers of war. Yeah, so then he sort of takes this and interestingly transitions to Deleuze and Guattari. Right, and let's let's talk about that. So he he gives you this other, he gives you this how does capitalism create this fanaticism that is made banal and there's an ironic distance towards it. He he loves kind of poking at ironic distance throughout this whole book. And that yes, there's terror and totalitarianism every day under neoliberal capitalism, but it's a small price to pay to be protected from the other much worse mm -hmm. examples. And I think what he's doing here is giving this as a primer for why Deleuze and Guattari give such a good analysis of capitalism. As brought about in their book, Anti-Oedipus, Capitalism and Schizophrenia, and 10,000 Plateaus, Volume 2 of Capitalism and Schizophrenia. The two volumes that uh, Deleuze and Guattari are most known for, but how does he link? How does he link this to? So capitalist realism. So far, we've defined it as it's easier to imagine the end of the world than it is to imagine the end of capitalism. So then we get into the Badu quote, and the Badu quote provides more or less a pillar of justification for that because. The end of capitalism is, as we have established, evil. Evil is unimaginable, and therefore we can't imagine the end of capitalism. Uh, so I think that's sort of a way that we're kind of bringing this Badu quote back into the capitalist realism fold. So then we have the idea of Deleuze and Guattari, quote Fisher here, described capitalism as kind of a dark potentiality which haunted all previous social systems. Capital, they argue, is the unnameable thing, the abomination, and so on. It's an interesting way he sort of transitions where he kind of uses this idea of externalities of capitalism from Badu, but then kind of switches gears and identifies capitalism as an externality, CNG. Um, but, I mean, I think very generally, for the sake of moving on, we're back to this idea of continual desacralization, of basically just creating a world where the only horizon of vision is capital because your 
ability to connect with the Sublime has been turned into a product. Turned into a product and has been re-territorialized. As he says here, in the years since Deleuze and Guattari wrote the two volumes of their Capitalism and Schizophrenia, it has seemed as if the deterritorializing impulses of capitalism have been confined to finance, leaving culture presided over by the forces of re-territorialization. So, now we are moving on to... Francis Fuck Your Mama. Francis yep. Fukuyama, yep. Japanese-American political theorist. Yeah, sure. Uh, anyway, the guy was like famous in the early 90s because he wrote a book called The End of History right after the fall of the Soviet Union in which he posited that liberal democracy is resolved to be the eternal uh, ideology of the world and that the war of ideology, as it were, is over. The full title of the book is called The End of History and the Last Man. Right. Which comes up. So the basic thesis of this is that Marxism was wrong, that it is not a Marxist proletariat that will inherit the world, that will bring down the bourgeoisie, but rather it is Nietzsche's last man that will be the inheritor of the world. Yeah, well, or at the very least, this is the danger that Fujiyama identified in a world without a battle of ideology is this general... Malaise. Yeah, I mean, essentially, yeah. Fujiyama, while predicting the end of history in a somewhat triumphalist way, also identified this issue that with nothing else to fight, people might just turn inward and not see a reason to believe in anything without ideology. I feel like he was just, it's one of those where he, he just kind of seems angry at the kids these days. Yeah. Like the Gen X slacker kids that were Right, like, I mean, uh, yeah. So that were like, whatever, whatever. Probably, what do you uh, believe in? Well, I believe in whatever. Right, I mean, we were all patriotic when we were getting called up to fight in World War II because we were defending the American way against this other, and now that we don't have another, why should anyone care about patriotism in the first place? Uh, was essentially the issue that Fujiyama brought up. Uh, it's not super important to the book other than Fisher kind of uses it almost exemplary to say that this feeling of is capitalist realism is a problem sort of pops up even in people who would be politically on the right and wouldn't really put it in terms of capitalist realism or see a desirable thing in the overthrow of capitalism. He also sees it as a, he likes to poke Fukuyama saying that it, it's actually a misinterpretation of Nietzsche. He says some of Nietzsche's most prescient pages are those in which he describes the oversaturation of an age with history. It leads an age into a dangerous mood of irony in regard to itself, and subsequently into the even more dangerous mood of cynicism, in which cosmopolitan fingering, a detached spectatorialism, replaces engagement and involvement. This is the condition of Nietzsche's last man, who has seen everything, but is decadently enfeebled precisely by the excess of self-awareness. So anyway, that was fun. Then he mentions Jameson. He transitions by saying Fukuyama's position is in some way a mirror image of Frederick Jameson, the person I really wanted to talk about. I would say that, but that's what he means. So he is getting into Jameson. Jameson is important to this whole book. In Mark Fisher's words, I would want to argue that some of the processes which Jameson described and analyzed have now become so aggravated and chronic that they have gone through a changing kind. So essentially, this changing kind is capitalist realism. So Jameson, in the 1980s, wrote a book called Postmodernism. Or the Cultural Logic of Late Capitalism. 
in which he was describing much of the same ideas about how one views the world living in capitalism in the 1980s. Mark Fisher is essentially saying that the things that Jameson identified were true in the 80s. They remain true in many ways, but because we're no longer in the 80s, they're so different now that I'm giving a different name to it. That name is capitalist realism. Right. And he says there are three reasons why he chooses capitalist realism over the more popular term uh, that is often thrown around even today of postmodernism. Right. Which is also the term Jameson used. Yep. So, the reason number one. Number one. When Jameson wrote Postmodernism, the USSR still existed, providing a potential alternative to capitalism. So quite literally, um, it would in fact be absurd in the 1980s to say there is no alternative to capitalism, uh, even though Thatcher did say that. But it's a somewhat absurd statement because the Soviet Union still existed. So of course it might be a terrible alternative, but the alternative is there. We are not saying it was a terrible alternative. I am not saying it's a terrible alternative by any stretch. Although 1980s, eh. Um, but, you know, it, it, it doesn't matter whether you thought it was good or bad. You can't logically say there's no alternative because there was one. Whereas today, there also is one. Don't get on us, you Maoist fucks. Um, <laughs> Dengist. Yeah, whatever. Socialism with Chinese characteristics is great. Totally an alternative to capitalism, but let's pretend it isn't for, for the this sake is calling of this number one. This is calling all of you out. Yeah, anyway, don't get on my ass. Uh, so, that's number one. Number two, modernism and postmodernism. So, the idea when Jameson was describing postmodernism, that necessarily implies a modernist alternative. In Jameson's day, he was identifying this process of pastiche uh, in which uh, signs and signifiers created through modernist art, such as, you know, your surrealist paintings, uh, John Cage quiet music, what have you. Well, it's linking it to Adorno. Right, right. They Adorno, are... Theodore Adorno, who is the uh, Frankfurt School theorist who came up basically with the idea of the modern and the modernist kind of reproduction, the cultural production. Right. But anyway, Jameson's describing a slightly different process by which these are now even more removed of their context and turned into, for example, uh, artwork on an ad for a car or something like that. And Jameson's identifying this process, whereas uh, Fisher claims that today uh, modernism itself is dead and it only at this point exists as pastiche. It has wholly been taken up by postmodernism, so it almost doesn't even make sense to call it postmodernism anymore because there's no modern. So that's number two. Number three. A little similar to number one, but it's the <laughs> idea that because the Soviet Union no longer exists and hasn't existed for 20 years at this point, at the point this book is written, there's an entire generation that doesn't remember the Soviet Union existing and has only known a world of all capitalism and therefore our ability to envision presumes capitalism a priori. It's less so about, well, there's an alternative, and more so about, even if I was to imagine an alternative, that alternative is something that would come up under capitalism. Just as we were saying before, it's not like an invading force would set up an entirely different government or, or economic system, because an invading government would invariably be a different form of capitalism that would take over and it would just be a competing form of capitalism. 
So those are the three things. And if any of yous are coming at this from having watched any video essay about capitalist realism, it's highly likely they would have pointed out those three things. Uh, it's a fairly common uh, basis by which to analyze Marx's argument because it's always fun when an author uh, numbers things. Yeah, and the, the third one has more to do with memory, I think, than the first one. Like, you and I were both born in the same year, 1988. We do not have a memory of a time when there was the Soviet Union and therefore our memory cannot even imagine in our imagination a world where capitalism was not the only superpower that existed as our everyday. Whereas maybe someone 10 years older, someone 20 years older would remember, oh yeah, back then there was the Soviets, we were fighting the Soviets if you're an American or you're British. We were fighting the Soviets back then and we, haha, we won, you know, in this triumphal, you know, we beat back the Ruskies. But we don't even have that. We just have capitalism existed, capitalism was doing great during the 90s, and then 9-11 happened. And that was our conditioned experience. And I think capitalist realism kind of encapsulates that lived experience. Thank you for investing. Go there for your rota, there for your orders. Fill up these quotas, we'll bill for your quarters. Report to your foreman, but watch for marauders. Cause if you get eaten, there's fees for your mourners. Right, so what happens in a world with no alternatives to capitalism, with no imaginable alternatives to capitalism? And given that, as we've discussed, capitalism is a desacralizing force, and he kind of ends this chapter with a look at uh, Kurt Cobain. One of the victims of this, as he identifies it. Right. And the, he is a victim of what exactly? So Fisher is going to kind of develop this term that he calls pre-corporation, which is itself referring to Gay Debord. Uh, Guy Debois? Yes. Um, the situationist yeah. theorist um, from the 1960s. Yeah. Uh, uh, and modernist uh, French artsy Marxist from back in the day. And he basically was a main player in the 1968, May of 1968. Uh, college universities in France kind of rebelled. And they kind of all took slogans from his book, Society of Spectacle. Yeah, Society of the Spectacle. So he has this term and this concept of incorporation, I believe. Recuperation. Recuperation, that's it. He, recorporation, a, recuperation. The old struggle between detourment and recuperation, between subversion and incorporation. Okay, yes. So, so... The board was true to your image of an artsy 60s radical uh, from France. Very important to know this man is from France. So he, he has this idea of being subversive, of displaying communism in many ways, of displaying non-compliance with the state as a way to challenge the state. And there's this idea that he came up with of recuperation where the state might take this subversion and then turn it into something that's a part of the state. So, you know, your protest song that appears in a car commercial uh, would be an example of that. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, even a punk band suddenly appearing on a big label, whereas punk music is supposed to be this space of proletarian creativity, of communal creation, uh, outside of the market system, and then it invariably becomes a part of the market system because it's a very marketable piece of artwork. And what Fisher uh, lands on is that in our day, there's this idea of pre-corporation, wherein 
the very idea that subversion can exist has been taken away from us yep. uh, via capitalist realism. And that it must be understood by those of us who listen to music, by those of us to, who consume art, that of course this is a product, that this product is designed to make money on the market from us, and that merely expecting anything else is woefully, hopelessly naive. And you can very much see this in, uh, you know, attitudes about selling out, about how back in the day there was this strong notion that a band could either be real, authentic, or it can sell out. And selling out is a process that you do by which you make your music more broadly marketable, you sign with a big label, you make a lot of money, but that takes away this authentic kernel that you once held that your true fans would therefore reject you over. And it's it's embodied in the statement, uh, <laughs> I like their old stuff. I don't like their new stuff. Right, anymore. sure, sure. Back when they when they joined Warner Brothers and started putting out three minute songs instead of seven minute songs. Right. And so already in the eighties and nineties you it started emerging in uh, hip hop a lot. Um or you suddenly have these people who were actually quite open about the desire to sell out, and it was a mark of success. It was a mark of rewards for your hard work. And then you had a struggle against that, and he uses Kurt Cobain as this case study. Uh, Kurt Cobain, of course, founded Nirvana. He made music initially a part of a local scene in Seattle, it was abrasive music. It was different than music that came out before it. It, but kept, it, was, it, it kept it real. But it was also eminently marketable. And Nirvana became one of the most successful bands in the world. Um, and then Kurt Cobain killed himself. <laughs> yeah, he died by suicide. He uh, struggled with fame and success that came of this contradiction of being like, totally conditioned to be real and authentic with his art and to produce this deeply meaningful and powerful thing every time he got up on stage. And the more that he did that and the more successful he got when he did that, the more alienated he felt as a result and of his success. And the thing that Fisher is honing in on is... He literally could not do anything about it, even if he... Well, he did want to. He really wanted to. Uh, but he couldn't do anything about it. He could go on MTV and say MTV sucked, and that would increase MTV's ratings. You know, uh, Cobain knew he, that he was just another piece of spectacle. And nothing runs better on MTV than a protest against MTV. One of my favorite quotes, I want to do the full thing. The... Um in his dreadful lassitude and objectless rage, Cobain seemed to give wearied voice to the despondency of the generation that had come after history, whose every move was anticipated, tracked, bought, and sold before it had even happened. Cobain knew that he was just another piece of spectacle that nothing runs better on MTV than a protest against MTV. Protest is going to come back again. Knew that his every move was a cliche scripted in advance. Knew that even realizing it is a cliche. The impasse that paralyzed Cobain is precisely the one that Jameson described. Like postmodern culture in general, Cobain found himself in a world in which stylistic innovation is no longer possible. All that is left is to imitate dead styles, to speak through the masks and with the voices of the styles in the imaginary museum. Yeah, and I, I mean, I, I also... There's so many references to museum in this first chapter. Mm -hmm. Like, he, the Battersea is sort of... is like creating a personal museum. There is also a museum feeling that comes with 
the Marx quote and the reference to British Museum. And here we have again, and it's it's funny because I I saw a at the Brooklyn Museum a number of years ago. They had pieces of his clothing from his music videos. God damn, he would have fucking hated that. <laughs> yeah, they had they had the the like the silver um, from the one of the music videos, but like it was all on display in the museum in this oh inter God. interactive it's, way. It's the high school gym from <laughs> Yeah. Um yes, and uh, you know, it, it makes me even think of I mean you know, we... I think it was from the Heart Shaped Box music video. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, well, that's a good video. Um, but anyway, yeah, I, and it, it, it sort of makes me... Because it, it's interesting to look at the 90s as this transitory period where you had both the old ethos of authenticity with this new pre-corporative idea that authenticity never existed and actually you're being inauthentic for pretending it existed and you know today you have james gunn who in the 90s and 2000s um created some of the most disgusting and not for mass audience indie films of all time and now he made a bunch of movies for Marvel that were made trillions of dollars and then he got poached by DC and now he makes a bunch of movies for DC. And mo most people who like those superhero movies don't know about this man's previous work. And it's almost like no one has an issue with it. No one points out like, oh wow, James Gunn sold out. Like you'd actually kind of be laughed at if you said James Gunn sold out. You know, it, it's a thing that we kind of see today where it's like almost taken for granted that you are doing subversive art as part of a career arc. Yeah. And what are you fucking stupid if you like point that out as being weird? You know, and on the one hand, um, arguably James Gunn made nominally better schlocky trillion dollar superhero movies than other people so that's nice i guess but um my my two favorite examples of this is avril lavigne and good charlotte like having the aesthetics of like rebellion mm -hmm. while being completely corporatized and maybe that's just because yeah i mean i think you know, or pre-corporation. I, mean, uh, pre I, I think that even gets to the transition-ness of the 90s, because you did, during the 90s, have punk fans who are like, oh, well, that's not real punk, whereas today there's almost... A nostalgia for yeah, it. Yeah, there's a nostalgia for it, and also there's a chuckle like, oh, you think real punk exists. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Like, yeah. sure. You were saying about Green Day. Right, right. Green Day, I mean, I, I remember seeing a fucking Behind the Music VH1 back in, like, 2000 goddamn one or whatever about Green Day. And, like, I mean, I remember them even talking about, like, you know, how, like, when they first got big, they were, like, worried about losing their authenticity and, oh, are we selling out now? And, you know, you look at, I mean, you look at fucking movies like goddamn Wayne's World. Like, you you have this whole genre of movies throughout the 80s and before about, like, oh, yes, there's talented people, but the worst thing that the talented person can do is sell out. And you need to find a way to be successful without selling out. And you had this kind of narrative running through it, which I think in some different ways persists. This idea that in order to resolve this contradiction, you have the the protagonist go on his journey as this person who who sells out and gets away from what he really wanted to do right. as his he authentic find, yeah, self. He, ha he finds this profound emptiness. He or she. He or she finds this emptiness while being surrounded by material success so much so that they then invariably give up the material success to re 
find the thing that makes them whole again. And then often, depending on the movie, they also get the material success. Or they are able to then spin their authentic selves into right. material Something success. Something marketable, but quote-unquote on their terms. Yeah. Again, you have this sort of idea that, yeah, that's not even realistic, and that's not what you should be doing. You should be, you're on a career path. You're not creative because you love to be creative. You're creative because... You are on a career arc, and these are the things that you do to eventually qualify for the big job, which is where you get paid a lot of money. One of the things that Fisher kind of hones in on with Cobain's death, Cobain's death he sees as a transition from rock being the eminent pop music of the time to hip-hop being the pop music of the time. That Cobain's death kind of signaled this movement from rock music to hip-hop and uh this as he puts it also changed the way in which artists interact with their audience and interact with quote-unquote reality or being real that now you have this kind of hip-hop performance as the version of the real in which material wealth being reflected is their authentic self Right. being rewarded right yeah when they were poor and shit um and, and there's you know something of a social structural you know our thing one can tease to sort of explore why this might be uh fisher doesn't really do it here but you know there is this notion that no when they were poor and shit that wasn't their real selves their real selves is the person with like jewelry and things and that's better and that's decidedly better than being poor and uh not having all those things and to the extent that you have authenticity it's usually this played up machismo and this toughness that you learned from your former life that you still hold on to to defend your material items that you've gained right he briefly talks about it, but then links it to gangster movies and links kind of gangster rap to gangster movies in which gangster movies also have this, like, I started from the bottom and now I've risen through the ranks and made it to my true self, which is the made man, the... I mean, it is just kind of... I mean, like, just looking at the list of movies he names let's see scarface main character dies at the end godfather films okay i guess he has a happy ending reservoir dogs ugh. <laughs> uh goodfellas nope uh pulp fiction everyone dies you know it is just like as far as the uh model for success i don't know entirely how much but yeah no there's this definite uh superficial and kind of removed from the context of the movie's aesthetic um, as he says that in the next beginning of the next chapter which is a teaser that there is a super identification with capital that exists within rap music and w exists within gangster movies where mm -hmm. the comet like flaming towards the heights of their being successful and having their material wealth reflect their true being then leads them to have right, their right. their selves destroyed by the end of it but hey at least they lived mm. this bountiful lifestyle for a short period of time and yeah that just about uh finishes out yeah, he, he kind of transitions into the next chapter which is this neo-noir Hobbesian worldview. Yeah, you mentioned Sin City and the like, and uh... James Elroy and Frank Miller. Mm -hmm. But these are more kind of examples of like how there's so much darkness within this framework of capitalism. Right, and also, I mean, to to be clear, I mean, he also has in this uh, section the. Uh, Simon Reynolds quote where we have this idea of realness is sort of used pessimistically. I mean, it sort of reminds me of last season we talked about this idea of pessimistic epistemology. 
of the world is bad and therefore the smart thing to do is accept that and so yeah there is well this... he he mentions in last chapter frank miller and james elroy as well yes yeah as then examples that's... that he 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 has the counter example of david peace and he has a he has a k-punk article that we might go over called david peace and capitalist realism mm -hmm. teaser for our patreon um possibilities potentialities right. okay i think that's uh, just about does it very happy to be back and i'm happy you are all back listening to us yeah we'll see this you in the next chapter one and we will see you uh next week with chapter two Rain 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 Rain